Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Alan Ruskin joins us now, the head of G10 FX Strategy at Deutsche Bank. Great to have you with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios let's talk with with uh, let's talk a little bit about oil uh, we saw the diminishment in price set yesterday how does that play out in in the currency markets what are you looking at for for indications of how that's playing out here a day after that began um, David, well, the first thing I think you look at is, is this indicative of a sort of a broader story of risk off you know are we seeing risky assets selling off and the intriguing aspect of this particular decline in crude oil is how equities have tended to for the most part still rally. So this is not a broader risk of story. This is a little bit unique to oil. And therefore, you're mostly seeing a response amongst the major oil producers, uh, currencies like the Russian ruble, for example. That, that has been responsive. But most of the other currencies that might respond from a risk-off standpoint are not responding. And that's appropriate. What does it tell you about the, the oil market? Yes, but also about this, um, this deal, the integrity of this deal that we had between OPEC producers and non-OPEC producers. In other words, does this, does this portend more bearishness going forward? Well, I think uh, what you're seeing is a sense that OPEC has lost its power mm. and that uh, the rise, the ascendancy of the non-OPEC producers and the U.S. in particular, I think, is is really, I think, driving the structural shift that we're seeing in terms of crude oil. And I think there's a sense that uh, any time oil pops its head much above, say, $50 a barrel, you're going to incur increased supply, not just on the OPEC side, but more importantly, from the non-OPEC side. Let me ask you about the, the news that I mentioned a few moments ago uh, out of Saudi Arabia. Of course, we, we, we watch what's happening with that, with that economy there. How big a part of the story is that? What's going on in Saudi Arabia, the role it plays in the, the global oil market? Well, the Saudi's always going to be, you know, uh, huge players uh, in in terms of uh, global oil. There's uh, obviously a lot of other political aspects going on as well in terms of um, what seems to be some reproachment, maybe with Russia to some extent, uh, and uh, stronger linkages with Russia. Uh, there's obviously the situation as it relates to the Qataris, but for the most part, I don't think we're seeing, uh, you know, huge shifts that are politically driven. Uh, in the end, it still seems incumbent on the Saudis to play swing producer if they're to drive prices higher. If they don't want to play that role, then it's very easy to see prices continuing to decline. You were, you were sitting with Tom whilst the, the Queen was beginning her speech uh, in Parliament. What do we hear from her today about uh, the UK economy, about uh, the path forward here for, for Brexit? How important, aside from the ceremony of the, the speech itself and the opening of, of Parliament, uh, how substantive a speech was it today? Well, it all sounded so easy, yes, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And I, you know, it, uh, almost utopian. So, look, I think you have to take this in the context of um, a government that doesn't really exist at this point in time, uh, what seems like a, a very weakened uh, prime minister, and uh, 
probably at least as important. It's not so much what the UK wants, but it's also what Europe wants. Mm. And uh, so you've got a lot of different elements there that make it very difficult to second guess where this is all going as far as the hard Brexit, mm -hmm. soft Brexit uh, debates concerned. So I think uh, that, I think, is styming the market in terms of its uh, natural response. Um, I, I want to say Sterling Stronger, Alan, off of the Queen, who looked, <laughs> I thought, lovely. Uh, in a quieter dress without the regalia that usually is associated with David Gura into the studio. <laughs> but no, it wasn't the Queen. It was Mr. Haldane of the Bank of England, who says, quote, risks of tightening too late have risen. Risks of tightening too early have shrunk. Partial withdrawal of extra stimulus prudent. It is a most hawkish speech, spiking sterling to a modest uh, level, 126.83. Uh, I, I, I wonder, Alan, about that. I mean, politics, I would suggest, says, no, don't raise rates. But it can, is Mr. Haldane on to something? Well, I think what you're seeing is some of the divisions that you have uh, within the Bank of England. Uh, the Bank of England is notorious for not necessarily speaking with one voice. Um, at the same time, you have to listen, I guess, to uh, Mr. Carney more than anybody. And Mr. Carney has spoken and just spoken yesterday. So I think we've got an update of his particular views that don't seem to reflect uh, the Bank of England's chief economist's views necessarily. But uh, I think, you know, what he is saying is, look here, there's some asymmetry in terms of this debate in so much as, you know, there's days of the Bank of England needing to ease are gone, really, in a sense. And if there's a next policy move, it's, it's to hike interest rates. And he's highlighted the possibility, in fact, of hiking, you know, obviously this year. So yeah. this, this year, actually, that's a, that, that's, a big, that, that's a big step, Tom, because there are not many central banks out yeah. there who are going to be tightening this year. In the time left in our discussions earlier this morning, you mentioned a given pair, in this case, sterling, having much more influence off of euro or off of dollar. Am I still right that the Japanese yen is the go-to safe haven currency? Is that, is that quaint of me to say that? Um, it is and it isn't, Tom. <laughs> there are times when, you know, you have these sort of risk-off moves and briefly uh, the yen does respond, uh, and, and favorably that is. But uh, I think what you've seen is the primary driver as far as uh, dollar yen in particular is really U.S. Treasuries and the spread between U.S. Treasuries and JGBs. Now, JGBs are being held steady by the BOJ, so effectively it's really U.S. Treasuries that are defining, defining where dollar yen goes. What maturity do you use so I can make a chart that's appropriate for Bloomberg Radio? I need to steal this, David. Yes, no, please. Um, so I, if, if I was, you know, if you're going to steal Junior? anything, I think the 30-year U.S. Uh, T-bond minus the 20-year oh. JGB, I think, Explain. is the one to that's, go for. Explain. That's fascinating. Explain why you go out so I, I go out further because… Oh. The BOJ is anchoring the 10-year sector, so it's not moving. And the 20-year sector is moving. And there's certainly Japanese investors who believe there's still some yield to be had uh, in the 20-year sector. So it moves around a little bit. So uh, for that reason, I'm really moving out the curve. Um, the 20-year in the U.S. obviously not yeah. quite as liquid as the 30-year. So that, you know, hence the 30-year minus the 20-year in, in, in Japan. David, I'm going to dazzle them at dinner tonight. <laughs> When, when we talk about the, the third year the table US side turmoil that you have, yeah. don't invite me <laughs> bring it out on the card. <laughs> Alan, let me ask you lastly about dollar Mexico. I look at the chart here over the last you know, six, seven months, and we see we see levels here that we haven't seen since the the election in, in November. What, what does that tell us about the interregnum here? What what's happened since the the U.S. presidential election? Indeed, what's your your sense of where that pair is heading? 
Yeah, well, I think uh, there was a perception of uh, considerable fear down in Mexico uh, as it related to Donald Trump's views on, on NAFTA, and those have slowly dissipated. And the Mexican pesos responded in part, of course, because there was a sense of overshoot, that uh, the peso was genuinely cheap, and it was really amongst the very cheapest currencies out there, the very cheapest of the liquid currencies, that is. So um, there's a sense that, uh, okay, we've kind of converged now closer to fair value, but it's still, if anything, erring on the cheaper side. Mm-hmm. Alan Ruskin, appreciate uh, appreciate you being here as always. That's Alan Ruskin. He is the uh, global head of G10 FX strategy at Deutsche Bank, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Uh, again, great to have you with us on the program yeah. today. And uh, what did you think of the speech, Tom? I know that you, you, you love the... Um, it was, well, yeah, you know, full disclosure, folks, yeah. I'm a big Anglophile, you know, yes. and, and that uh, it, it partly is time moving on to see Prince Charles sitting next door. The Duke of Edinburgh is ill mm, at 96, hospital, believe, yeah. uh, quite suddenly. And so Prince Charles shows up at 68 years old. Mm-hmm. And just it, It's that whole time is marching on. She was dressed quietly today, going back to 1974. Cornflower blue. Or was, well, I don't know what the color is, yeah. but... It wasn't the usual queenly <laughs> regalia. <laughs> this is a joy. He is a gentleman of first-rate economic abilities, Jose Vinales, not only with a tour of duty at Stanford teaching a few years ago, but his work out of the London School of Economics and Harvard as well. And he has taken on a job as an economist in banking. He is chairman of the Standard Charter Bank, and we are honored that he joins us now in our New York studios. Uh, professor, I have to call you Professor. Professor Vignelles, uh, you, you had a wonderful tour of duty at the International Monetary Fund where you saw emerging markets. Can you advise the Standard Charter system that emerging markets are buoyant and can sustain economic growth? Well, thank you. Emerging markets um, have been a very critical part of the global economy um, in the wake of the crisis, and they have contributed uh, around 70% 70 of total global growth. And emerging markets uh, continue to be strong. Of course, potential growth is now lower than what uh, it used to be before the crisis, as it's happened in advanced economies. But still, I think that they offer uh, very significant opportunities for doing business. Um, and uh, if the economic management in these countries is, uh, is, is good, I think that there are many uh, good days ahead for right. emerging markets and their populations. The challenges that the Standard Charter Bank have had, I think, are known to most of our global Wall Street listeners. You and a new team have come in to not so much right the ship. Tell us about, and this is in the IMF work, the rule of law within the different nations. Are we getting towards a more, not so much Anglo-American system, but just a more understanding of transparency within our banking system? Yes, I think that this has been a major uh, uh, advance that has taken place in uh, emerging markets since the last great emerging markets crisis, which was the uh, uh, global, uh, you know, uh, the Asian crisis, and which also had some some repercussions uh, beyond Asia. 
Um, now you have much better economic governance in terms of central bank independence. Uh, you have stronger institutions. Uh, principles of economic rationality are applied uh, widely in most economies. But of course, one cannot yet declare victory. There are countries whose uh, economic institutions are uh, still uh, in need of, of much work. I would say that for a number of countries in, in Africa, and where uh, a lot of uh, uh, progress still needs to be made in fully granting central banks independence and having uh, governments which are free from uh, you know, corruption and uh, other problems that may lessen the ability of these countries to grow into the future. A few years ago, uh, we were talking about uh, Africa rising, and although there have been a few events since then, like Ebola and, and, and the uh, uh, sort of uh, big fall in commodity prices, which have hit uh, a number of these economies, I still think that Africa is going to be one of the success stories in the developing world in the next few years. And Asia continues to be a sort of a global uh, powerhouse in terms of economic growth. Let me ask you about um, the, the Chinese plan for the new Silk Road. The, the, the form that took place just a few months ago was the, the opportunity to unveil that to the world, and we, we focus a lot on the geopolitics of that, the geopolitical ramifications of China doing this. What does it stand to do to the economy uh, in the region to have an initiative like that, of that scale and amb ambition? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, very important uh, uh, initiative on the part of uh, China. And we as Standard Chartered happen to be the bank with the broadest presence in the one uh, uh, bell, one road uh, uh, footprint. So you get to put ATMs in all along the Silk Road, <laughs> like Marco Polo had. Marco Polo had the statement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, and this is an initiative which is, is huge. Uh, we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, double digits in terms of potential uh, investment, trillions of, you know, double digits in terms of trillions of dollars. And if well executed, it's something that can play a very important role in improving the connectivity between uh, other economies in Asia with China, but also in the Middle East, in Africa, and including Europe. So I think that it's a major, major initiative to improve connectivity through infrastructures, uh, through trade. And, and, and I think it's, it's to be welcomed. Now, the important thing is that all of those projects are well designed and well executed mm. because you don't want to have roads that uh, lead to nowhere or bridges which are never crossed. So you need to have, uh, you know, very strong criteria of efficiency, economic, private and social efficiency in most of these projects, and also make sure that the governance of these projects is appropriate so that you don't get into all the difficulties. But I think that, as it was the case in other countries which received sort of uh, aid in the past or, or lending in the past, soft lending in the past to build their infrastructures, I think that this is a tremendous opportunity to improve globalization for the emerging markets and developing economies. Tom mentioned your background with the IMF, and I wonder how folks within that institution today view what's happening in China with this initiative. Do they see it as a complement to the work they're doing? Should they be nervous about the, the leadership role that China is taking here uh, in development uh, in Asia? Uh, how should they view what's happening? Well, I, I cannot speak any sure. longer for the IMF. Sure. Let me just offer my personal remarks on, on how I see things. And China clearly has become an economic, uh, you know, one of the main economic powers in the world. We are moving more towards a multipolar world. And I think it is natural that an economy like China is trying to project uh, itself in the in the global scene. 
And this initiative of the World Mailworm Road is something that certainly is going to enhance the cloud of China, but it's also something which is going to provide a lot of good financing for economies that need to develop and improve their standards mm. of living. So I think it can be a win-win situation if it's well uh, executed, uh, but there could be also other outcomes. But I hope that things happen in the way that would be good for mm-hmm. both China and the rest of these countries. We'd be rude if we didn't ask about London this day of the Queen's speech. Standard Charter goes back to 1853 uh, in London. Are you going to buy more square footage there? Can you? Can we need to break some news here, Chairman. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to expand out basing all? I mean, we're building a place here. Come on, you guys can build a new place. Will you invest in London in the coming uh, years? Well, we, we are uh, uh, certainly... Uh, we are headquartered in London, although uh, we happen to be present in about 69 countries mm-hmm. over the world, but we are headquartered in London, and uh, we will remain so. So uh, we do a lot of uh, corporate and institutional banking out of London. Uh, it's, it's fundamental for us. We're regulated by the uh, British uh, authorities. Uh, we're very happy with, uh, with, uh, with the relationship we have with them, and we think that the city of London mm-hmm. is, a, is a great place. And for us, Brexit uh, is going to affect us very marginally because since we have the bulk of our operations in emerging markets and developing economies, uh, we're going to be very, very lightly affected, and it's very easy for us to deal with Brexit. David and I don't care. We just want to use your helicopter pad to get to Heathrow (laughs) from your headquarters. One final question, sir, if we could. Uh, You are affiliated with the Central Bank of your Spain uh, for years and years. We've been hearing really good things about Spain. If you compare economic growth in Spain to economic growth in France, it is remarkable. What's the next five-year plan for Spain? Well, I think that that what Spain needs is, first of all, to consolidate all the progress that has been made. Mm -hmm. And it is true that it's now one of the fastest growing uh, sort of large economies in uh, in in the European Union. Um, and that is a testimony to a number of things that were done in Spain in the last few years. The banking reform has been very deep. Spain took the bull by the horns. Yeah, like terms. Ireland. To that, me, it's like Ireland. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they did the right thing at the right time, and uh, that has led yeah. to a banking system, which is a source of support to the economy by the provision of credit. Spain did also labor market reforms, which have been mm-hmm. very powerful in enhancing job creation. And Spain has maintained fiscal prudence, which I think is very important. That, uh, coupled with the inherent dynamism Mm -hmm. of civil society in Spain, I think has played very well. And this is a story. So more needs to be done in terms of reforms. Uh, The fiscal prudence needs to be continued or intensified. And um, that's 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 the plan. We have to leave it there. Jose Vinyaz, he is the chairman of the Standard Charter Bank of London and the world as well. Thank you so much. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. So why don't you bring in the esteemed... Minister of Portugal. Yes, the economy minister from Portugal, Manuel Caldera Cabral, who joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. It's great to have you with us. And uh, let's just start with um, your sense of growth uh, in Portugal, uh, what your what your sense of it is, what your forecast is for the year, and if you intend to revise that or think it might be revised going forward here. I think all, all the international agencies have been revised upwards. The, the Portuguese growth prospects 
And uh, I think we, we, we will hit a target close to 3% growth, which is a very interesting acceleration. And it also put us uh, uh, above the European Union average, which means that uh, our recovery is uh, strong and gaining momentum. Help us understand um, what drives the, the economy uh, in Portugal. It's a place, uh, I regret to say, I haven't visited yet. I've had many friends go there on, on vacation. Tourism is, is hugely important. But in terms of other sectors, uh, what's driving the Portuguese economy today? That's a very interesting uh, uh, question in the sense that we are having a very interesting increase in exports. Of course, tourism is part of that uh, increase. But uh, we are having an increase in exports in a diversified uh, set of sectors that include like metallic products, machinery, but also agricultural products are uh, expanding quite well. It includes uh, sophisticated services like software, where there was a boom in the startups some years ago, and now the startups <coughs> have grown up, and some of them are exporting uh, quite heavily. Uh, so it's a complex set of factors that had to do mm -hmm. with the, uh, uh, more coming of foreign direct investment, mm -hmm. like all the automobile factories that we already had there are expanding. Uh, several uh, investments from Bosch, Siemens, Altis, mm -hmm. uh, and other European firms are uh, gaining momentum and expanding. Right. And of course, tourism. Tourism, mm -hmm. especially from the US, yes. is growing uh, quite well. We had a 40% increase in tourism from the US. It has to do with well, more wait, wait, wait. Why, why did you have 40% increase in, in, from, what was this, a, was this a flight? No, it's it's a, it was a, a, an, impro, uh, an, an increase in flights. Our national yeah. uh, flight company, has the, it's the biggest one in uh, flights between Portugal and Brazil, and it had increased, uh, changed some flights from Brazil to the U.S. Yeah. We've expanded a lot of flights <clears throat> to the U.S. Yeah. But at the same time, it did that because we already had signs of increasing in the tourism in Portugal before the flights. And we was, we we were thinking that yeah. the, the non-existence of yeah. more direct flights uh, was dragging. And the, I know I know David that a lot of people now are flying through Lisbon because the taxes to go through Lisbon the fees are so much less than Heathrow, that that and you stop over and you stay for three weeks yeah. like yeah. John Tucker did on his last <laughs> vacation. Minister Minister um, Cabral of Portugal, you need a different euro price than the minister from Germany needs. What is your best euro price? Do you have in your head a valuation of euro that makes sense for Portugal? I think that uh, we had that problem uh, some years ago. We had an uh, important adjustment in the economy. And I think the exports are growing at 15% uh, when compared with last year. The exports have grown quite well and above the Germany average in the last 12 years. So I think we adjusted our competitiveness to a wrong price that we had in the euro. But now with the adjustment that we had in our competitiveness, we are managed to export and to grow our exports faster than, for instance, Germany uh, without any adjustment in the, in the price of the euro. And uh, I, I think that is the, the good news. And the other good news is that that is not happening just in one sector because it's going well. It's uh, happening in a set of sectors, quite diversified. And it's happening uh, for 10 years now, but it's increasing a lot in the last, in the last year, which, which means that the competitiveness of yeah. the Portuguese economy is in a good moment. It, it, the leg up in GDP that you've had recently, and as you mentioned, it's superb compared to the challenges Portugal's had for decades. Do you ascribe that all to the currency? I mean, 
Is, is currency what gets it done for Portugal? I think that the, the problem that we had had to do with currency for a while, but it had to do also with austerity policies in Europe. And uh, mm-hmm. when we dropped the austerity policies in Portugal, uh, we find ourselves in a policy that is a moderate policy, where we are having budget consolidation, and we had the lowest budget in 40 uh, budget deficit. I mean, in 40 years, uh, and we managed to increase growth while balancing the public accounts and while balancing as well uh, the external accounts. Our external superavit increased right. 28% in the last year, which, is, okay. which means that we are growing well, more but in a balanced way. So what this means is in April or May when we want to do the show from the Algarve, yeah. you can somehow make it happen for us, right? Yes, you should come to the Algarve, but you should come also to Lisbon and to places that uh, a lot of people are discovering now, like the Azores and the north of Portugal, which have a fantastic and pristine nature and are attracting new uh, kind of of tourists as well. We are promoting, for instance, the Douro Valley as closer to to New York than the Napa Valley. For your travel usage, the Minister of Portugal, thank you so much. This is a great joy. He uh, has a shingle out in public service for the uh, state of Rhode Island, where he is their general treasurer. Lots of topics to talk about. What's interesting about Seth Magaziner is not only out of Milton Academy, but out of Brown University, where he led the charge for Democrats. Seth, a timely question. Were there any Republicans at Brown University? (laughs) There were, although I'll say I I think as the... um uh, president of the College Democrats at Brown. I spent as much time uh, butting heads with folks on the left of me as, as I did on the right. But, um, but no, no, it was you know we had we had some healthy debates. Yeah, you know we kid about it, folks. But that, that's a good crucible to get into politics on, and particularly the the contact sport known as Rhode Island politics. Seth, uh, before I give you over to the pro David Gura, what do you need from President Trump right now? What does Rhode Island need from Washington? Oh, where to begin? I mean, I I would say, you know, from a budgetary point of view, the thing that we're most worried about in Rhode Island is whatever is going to come out of uh, the Senate with this secret health care bill that they're working on. Um, If it's anything like the House version, then Rhode Island is going to face the very tough choice of either letting 70,000 of our people lose health insurance or trying to come up with hundreds of millions of dollars to make up the difference, which in a small state like Rhode Island could uh, really break the bank. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things about this uh, administration that makes us nervous in Rhode Island. But when it comes to, you know, the state budget and and the state's finances, health care is probably number one. Seth, how big an issue is uh, is financial reform to folks in, in Rhode Island? I know you've spoken out quite vociferously against the Financial Choice Act that Jeb Henserling championed and was voted on by the House of, of Representatives. What do you hear from community bankers uh, in the state of Rhode Island about financial regulation and sort of what needs to change? Well, you know what's interesting is when I talk to community bankers, when I talk to our community banks, our credit unions, uh, sure, there are regulations that they feel are too onerous, but a lot of them were not part of Dodd-Frank. Uh, when I talk to our community banks, it, you know, the more common gripes are uh, things like some of the, um, you know, the Patriot Act, anti-money laundering uh, uh, regulations, that sort of thing. So, you know, if you really want to help smaller banks and credit unions, uh, Dodd-Frank may not be the place to start because, you know, Dodd-Frank was, as you know, crafted more 
at the you know the SIFIs, the too big to fails, as they're more commonly known uh, among the public, was more about you know the financial uh, systemic stability, you know, those issues. So, uh, you know, I think if you want to do something to help community banks, credit unions, uh, Dodd Frank is not where I would start. As far as the Financial Choice mm-hmm. Act goes, uh, there are a lot of things that concern us. I mean, in Rhode Island, we uh, had uh, one of the largest uh, housing and construction uh, booms and busts in the Northeast, uh, even in that time of you know 06, 07, 08, uh, when so many states were going through that, and you know I think that there's a sense uh, that Dodd Frank was put into place to try to prevent another crisis like that from happening. Why don't we even you know let's play it out. Let's let 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 ourselves go through a full cycle, see what works and what doesn't before we go and we start rewriting yeah. the thing. Seth, how did the the financial crisis shape you? I know you were teaching elementary school north of Lafayette in Louisiana. You leave Louisiana uh, around 2008. As all of this is unfolding, you joined Trillium in, in, in Greater Boston. Uh, how how did how did that? How did watching all of that unfold shape your perspective on the markets and the economy? It had a very profound effect on me. I was living and working as a, uh, as you mentioned, an elementary school teacher in rural Louisiana at the time. I had grown up in Rhode Island. I was born and raised here. I went to college here. So by the time I was, you know, 22 years old and out of college, I wanted to be as far away from Rhode Island as possible. And I, uh, I, I moved down to Louisiana. And I was teaching in a lower-income community. And, you know, we could see even before... Uh, we knew officially that we were in a recession. We could see it beginning to take hold. You know, there were Main Street businesses starting to shut down, and uh, I noticed it in you know the my students and uh, you know the layoffs that their parents were starting to go through. So, you know, we could tell that something wasn't right, and that did inspire me to go and get my MBA and get work in the financial sector, just so that I could understand better what was going on and uh, understand the levers in the broader economy that impacted communities like the one that I was working on, uh, working yeah. in, in Louisiana. We are fortunate here at Bloomberg Surveillance to have one of our board members at Bloomberg LP on off, and then that would be Mr. Levitt of the Securities and Exchange Commission. I know he only talks to you, Seth, because he needs fishing advice off Newport, <laughs> but, but you people have done original work on transparency of pensions. And I, the backdrop here, folks, are the challenges of Texas and the huge challenges of Illinois. What's your advice to the Illinois political disaster as they try to write their pension system based off the good work you've done in Rhode Island? Yeah, so as you know, Rhode Island uh, at one point had pension issues that were uh, almost as serious. We as call that Illinois like, yeah. Illinois and, and New Jersey and some of the other. Uh, uh, really troubled state pension systems around the country. Uh, and we had to undergo a very uh, painful reform uh, as a result where, uh, you know, a lot of retirees had their cost of living adjustments frozen, uh, public employees had their retirement ages increased, and, and so on. And, you know, there's a few things I would say. The first is the longer you wait, the more painful it's going to be. So if you're a state and you're worried about the sustainability of your pension system, you know, act sooner rather than later, or else, you know, the problem's only going to snowball and get worse. Uh, I'd also say it's incredibly important to have realistic assumptions uh, that you use to govern your pension system. The reason that a lot of state pension systems, including Rhode Island, got into trouble is that they were assuming that they were going to make, you know, 8%, 9% investment returns over time. 
And that basically became an excuse for underfunding those systems. And when you underfund them again, you're only going to end up having to pay more later if, if you mm-hmm. don't, you know, pre-fund early. So, you know, we in Rhode Island have, in addition to the reforms, we've made some moves to lower our assumed rate of return for the pension. It's yeah. now one of the lowest of any state in the country, and that, that has helped us. I will say in, you know, in um, uh, sympathy to the folks in Illinois, uh, one of the challenges that I know they have is that there is some uh, fairly restrictive language written into their state constitution about the types of changes they can make with their pension, and I think that's made it harder for them than uh, what a lot of other states have had to face. Now, when you mention transparency, though, that's a slightly different issue and one where we really have been a leader in Rhode Island. So uh, you see a growing awareness around the country that, uh, particularly with public pensions, but also in general, uh, transparency around the performance and the fees of alternative investment managers is a huge issue. And what you find is that a lot of funds, a lot of pension funds, they don't even really know what they're being charged um, between management fees, carried interest, and all the funding. Seth, we've got to leave it there, unfortunately. Seth Magaziner with the state of Rhode Island. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. Right now, uh, we need to talk oil, and oil is about the domestic view, and that would be pipelines and valves. And joining us, the one you want to hear from, because he was right on oil moving lower, Mr. Shork, Stephen Shork, the Shork Report. Stephen, congratulations again on getting the vector right of lower oil prices. Can we get out of the range and move to new recent lows? Uh, absolutely, Tom. Uh, we're at a point now when we were making the call for lower prices. Our concern at the time was that demand for crude oil had never been and still is stronger than ever. But the problem was is we were not seeing any sort of balancing in the market, regardless of this record demand. So the concern now, if you are long or if you are bullish oil, is the fact that we are over the next couple of weeks, going to transition out of the peak demand season, and demand will now start to seasonally fade as we get through into July, August, and certainly into September. So recently, we broke a key technical area of support in spot crude oil between 47.22 and 45.32. The next obvious target now, of course, is the psychological barrier at $40. Right. Now, if you're a technical guy like myself and you like the Fibonacci. I love the Fibonacci's. I don't, the next but continue. Targeted... Okay, fair <laughs> continue. enough. Continue. Each his own. To each yep. his own. So the next downside target range is 4065 to 3720 over yeah. the next two months. So right now the trend is your friend if you're bearish. What is the to-do list for OPEC? Not only are they distracted by the changing of the guard into Saudi Arabia, but they've been disappointed by their recent actions. Do they respond to this new low range of oil? Does OPEC become cognizant in Fibonacci analysis? What do they do? Well, OPEC has certainly overplayed its hand. And what's really hurt OPEC over the past two months is not the compliance issue, because OPEC compliance to the production quota has been very strong. In fact, it's been much stronger than I thought it was going to be, even up until this point. Their issue is the two countries that are outside of the agreement, that is to say, Libya 
in Nigeria, because of the civil strife in those countries, they were not beholden to any sort of production quota. And that's really what is really breaking OPEC's desire right now, is the additional output being put on by Libya and, uh, and, and Nigeria, as I said. So OPEC is really in, stuck in between a rock and a hard place. There's not much they can do. They've played their hand, and the market has called their bluff. So that bluff now being the fact that production inside of OPEC – as we've just said, is stronger than expected. But it's the U.S. shale producer. This is something, Tom, I've been screaming about since November when Wall Street went all in on higher oil prices, that OPEC was going to save the day. No one wanted to seem to give the credit to the U.S. oil producer. And the U.S. oil producer has responded amazingly well. And it's going to continue to respond through the end of the year. So now your OPEC, you've got a big problem. Because the first six months of your production quota, crude oil demand has never been stronger, and you failed to balance the market. Now we're going to go into the latter half of the year. Demand's going to fall, and U.S. production is going to remain stout. So really, OPEC is just stuck now, and they just have to try and ride this out until the next peak demand season, and that's at least six months away from them. Stephen, I was out of town yesterday. I was in D.C., so I just uh, was, was following all of this from, from afar. Uh, what what changed yesterday? What what led to the drop in oil prices yesterday? You know, essentially, it is now a realization that Wall Street now is jumping onto the bandwagon. That uh, we've gotten through, we've got into the season, and as I said before, when we look at the demand drivers in this market, yes, crude oil demand is very strong. So, what does that mean? That means the refiners are buying a lot of crude oil. What's, what's the other side of that? That means the refiners are making a lot of gasoline and diesel fuel. So, in fact, when we look at it, demand has never been stronger, but production of products have never been stronger. So, two weeks ago, the DOE issued a report, one of the largest bills ever recorded in 40 years of documented history, one of the largest bills of total oil, pro- oil so that's crude oil and the products. So right now what we've seen is Wall Street went all in on higher oil prices in December, January. They were wrong. They've gotten flat now, but the issue is they're not jumping back in. And what we're really starting to see on Wall Street is risk tolerance on the bears. So the bears are really stepping up into the plate. And as I wrote to clients in today's Daily Short report, what's really interesting is the crude oil producer is hedging a lot. So when we saw oil in the mid-50s, high-50s, the guys pulling the oil out of the ground were doing a lot of hedging. But the opposite end of that, the guys on the other end, the refineries who have to buy crude oil, are not hedging. So what's this telling you? It's telling you the producer thinks prices are high in the high 50s, and hence they've hedged. And the guys who right. have to buy the oil, the refiners, Brilliant. don't really need to hedge. That's well, a very long-term Yes. We're, no, that's brilliant. That's brilliant analysis there about the producers versus refiners and protection, the hedging uh, that goes on among the producers. Steve Short, within your your incredibly detailed Short report, where's your fair value on uh, West Texas? Where does West Texas clear right now? Uh, right now, we are. Right now, I'm looking at my Bloomberg. It's forty-three dollars sixty cents in the prompt market. Uh, we are well below. Uh, we are well below where you would expect to start to see uh, a WTI clearing right now. So we are probably a good five dollars a barrel below uh, the clearing mechanism at yeah. this point. 
So this is clearly a run now where the speculators are starting to sell. You're looking at a situation where the, the driving prices from this point on, Tom, is not necessarily going to be fundamentally driven. Okay. But it's going to be speculatively driven. So low prices are going to become okay. uh, the answer for even lower prices. I, 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 this is really important observation, folks. This is not my opinion, Mr. Shork's opinion, that we've moved away from supply, demand, et cetera, and much more over to flow dynamics within the trading market, which is what the Shork reports about. How does our listener catch a knife falling in the dark, Steve Shork, and know where to get in once the speculators uh, step away? Is that a cathartic event that you're waiting for? Uh, yeah, I'm actually waiting for, at this point, Tom, I'm waiting for even more bloodletting. I thought that uh, we were, we've been in this range, as I referenced before, before yeah. that 47.45 seemed to be the bottom, uh, but we're now beyond that. So step away, stay away from this. It is the proverbial trying to catch a fallen dagger. Uh, do not try to pick bottoms at this point. Let this run run its course, and then look for the uh, look for the seasonal dynamics. So I wouldn't venture into this market until we get beyond the turnaround season. So I'm, uh, now I'm talking September and October. So that's probably going to be your next opportunity. Uh, when this market the market has likely yeah. run its course to catch that knife and look for right. the turnaround as seasonal demand towards right. the end of the year picks back up. One, one final question. Do we see behavioral change among shale in the United States? Do those people stop doing what they do because of this new pricing? Well, the cost curve, especially in West Texas, have, has come down considerably over the past two Agreed. years. Yeah. So whereas two years ago, $45 oil would, would have had these guys uh, running for the exits, uh, they're still profitable now, and a number of these fields are still productive in that 35 to $45 mm-hmm. range. So when we look at the lower margins, greater productivity, right. and increased hedging, uh, so their oil's already sold. <clears throat> right. uh, it's going to take a while before we see some sort of deleterious impact on right. these prices on oil production. Steve, we just had an email come in. This is John from New Jersey. He wants to know, are we going to see $1.99 a gallon in New Jersey? $1.99. Well, you guys just raised your taxes in Jersey, uh, and I live in Philadelphia, and I always love coming to New Jersey for, for a number of reasons, especially for the cheap gas. And they pump it for uh, you. To that point. And the beaches. And exactly. And the food. And so, John, so John from New Jersey, the correlation is for every $1 drop in crude oil prices, you typically get about a $0.02 cent, uh, knock-on to gasoline prices. He's writing so, this down right uh, now, Steve. <laughs> yeah. So, so as, How long can I keep the Hummers, Steve? Okay. Steve Short, thank you so much for briefing John Tucker of the Hummer H2. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated.